0: Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. If you like today's show, please give us a thumbs up. And if you are not already a subscriber, I would love for you to subscribe to this channel. I bring to you the most fascinating content that is on the internet. So I'm very selective, so uh, enjoy. Um, Today, we have with us uh, Ralph Kilman, PhD, who is the CEO of Kilman Diagnostics, KD, in Newport Coast, California. In this position, he has created all of KD's online courses and assessment tools on the four timeless topics of conflict management. I know all your ears are perking up when I say that change management, expanding consciousness, which my ears perk up, and quantum transformation. Um, Ralph earned both his BS in Graphic Arts Management and MS in Industrial Administration from Carnegie Mellon University, and a PhD degree in the Behavioral Sciences in Management and Social Systems Design from the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Ralph's book. Let's take this off, (laughs) Ralph's little note, Mastering the Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument tki this is going to be super fascinating so welcome ralph it's great to have you
1: it's great to be here randy thank you so much
0: my pleasure okay so your book is called mastering the thomas kilfin kilman conflict mode instrumental instrument instrument TKI. What is that? (laughs) Briefly, I mean, this book goes into a lot of detail, but briefly tell us what it is. Well,
1: 50 years ago, I met Ken Thomas when I entered the doctoral program at UCLA. Mm -hmm. Uh, His interest was in conflict management. My interest was in instrument development. How do we measure these fuzzy things like conflict and power and communication and narcissism or whatever the topic happens to be? Can we put a number on it so we can assess people and then they have something more concrete to talk about? So to make a long story short, uh, we created this instrument that measures five conflict modes. I should mention that in the early 70s when we did this, there was hardly any discussion in the media about conflict. Conflict was a topic in a sociology course, maybe a political science course, maybe a psychology course, but that was it. And then fast forward uh, the last decades, particularly the last one, uh, all that people really talk about now is conflict, whether it's inside themselves, with other people, in the workplace, not to mention international conflict and civil wars, polarization on the political front. Uh, We are enmeshed with conflict. And so I'd like to say that Ken and I anticipated that 50 years ago, but we didn't. We just were academics interested in the conflict topic and trying to measure something as vague as that. And now we see that there is so much interest in people understanding what is conflict? Should I run away from it? Should I hide? Is it bad? Or is it something I can learn from, grow and develop and use it as an opportunity to become a better person and develop a better organization?
0: Wow. You guys were really trailblazers very much ahead of your time. And you're right. It is, um, you know, conflict is the, the number one topic right now in so many ways. And you named most of them. So you talked about the five conflict handling modes. Um, what are they?
1: Well, first, they're defined by two underlying dimensions. Uh, there's this model called the TKI conflict model. Mm-hmm. And on the y-axis, the vertical axis, we have assertiveness. That's the extent to which you try to get your needs met in a conflict situation. The other axis is the horizontal or the X axis, and that goes from left to right, and that's cooperativeness. That's the extent to which I try to get your needs and concerns met in a conflict situation. So on this conflict management space of my trying to get my needs met and my helping you get your needs met, we have these five modes. So high assertiveness, and low cooperativeness is called competing. I'm just concerned about my needs for the moment. I'm not at all concerned about your needs in the conflict situation. The opposite of that is accommodating. I'm not at all concerned about my needs and I wanna see your needs get satisfied. So I give in to you, I accommodate, I let you have your way. In the middle between competing and accommodating is compromising. We take a middle ground, we flip a coin, we take a middle position we split the difference and then at the very bottom where there's no assertiveness and no cooperativeness we have the conflict mode avoiding we leave the situation we withdraw nobody gets their needs met now as it turns out there's good times to avoid and there's bad times so each conflict mode has its use so for avoiding if tempers are hot if people are not listening to one another if you don't have to make a decision right now then Hold off and wait a while. That's avoiding. Okay. But if it's really important to you and the other person and you simply don't like conflict, and that's why you stay away from it, that's bad avoiding because no one's getting their needs met. Okay. Lastly, the fifth conflict mode is sounds at first like the ideal. It's called collaborating. And that's high in assertiveness and high in cooperativeness. Mm -hmm. I want to get my needs met and I want to get your needs met. It's not either or. But to collaborate, certain conditions must be present. We must trust each other to share what we really want and need. We must be able to communicate effectively our needs and wants. We must have time to hold that discussion because collaborating takes time. So if you're in a crisis mode, that's not the time to collaborate. Stress must be moderate or low so you can listen to one another and think clearly. So unless those conditions are there, you can't get everyone's needs met, and then you have a fallback position with the other four conflict modes. But with the conflict instrument, the TKI, people find out, and this is the beauty, whether they've been using certain conflict modes too much or too little. Some people use one mode all the time. They always compete. They always have to have their way, or they always accommodate because they don't think they deserve it, so they always give in. Mm -hmm. But with the TKI instrument, they found out, why? Why do I use just one or two modes? I've got these other choices. And then I can learn, when is each mode effective? So I read the situation and say, huh, this is a good time to compromise or accommodate or compete or collaborate or avoid. And you make that a conscious choice. So instead of habitually doing the same thing again and again, no matter what the nature of the conflict and the situation is. You read the situation, and you become mindful and choiceful.
0: That makes so much sense. I mean, that's it. That's really it. So um, this, the book that you wrote, is this really for practitioners, or is it for all of us?
1: Well, anyone who's embroiled in conflict. So that's pretty much everyone. And there's, of course, interpersonal conflict is the key. We can all identify with friends or lovers or spouses or children when we have differences. And the question is, how do we resolve it? OK, so that conflict is always there. And then you talk to people about conflict in the workplace, uh, conflict between an employee and the boss or among the employees about how certain things should be done, how to resolve it. And then, of course, as I mentioned, there's international conflict. But one thing that Ken and I did not anticipate at the time, which I only got into with greater maturity, age and experience, was to look at the inner conflicts within myself and within other people. So instead of just thinking about the conflict being out there with another person or a workplace, Mm -hmm. we say, what are the conflicts inside? And it turns out how I manage those conflicts inside are with the same conflict modes. I tend to use managing conflict out there. (laughs) And as I learn more about myself, then I can learn better how to be more effective with other people. So that's vital. So in some sense, I use the conflict model and the different conflict modes to help expand consciousness so people are more aware of who they are and how they interact with others. Wow.
0: This is so vital for us all to understand. And um, do we learn these, these conflict styles or conflict resolution styles um, in childhood and then bring them into adulthood? Or is this something that we just adapt to as adults?
1: I think it develops very early on in life. Uh, We see our parents, we see our siblings, we see how they manage conflict and they take the lead and we follow along. We get enculturated to how we manage conflict, just like we get conditioned to all our other behavior in life. So as a child, you are so surrounded by those powerful systems called parents and guardians and and the playgrounds and the schools, and you develop a certain style. And then a little later in life, you start saying, why am I doing this? Is this effective? Are there other alternatives? And you start growing up and saying, I don't have to just act out how I was conditioned. I can make mindful choices. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is by Mark Twain. And it's the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Why? Okay. And the finding out of the why is the saying, I am more than just a conditioned being and a conditioned animal that follows cultural patterns. I can look at what I'm doing. I can reflect and I can make different choices. I can do things different than were given to me. And I can take any wounds I had in childhood and turn them into gifts because that's what collaborating on the inside is all about.
0: Okay, okay. Um, yes, we do have choices and I and I find when, when I'm working with my clients that once they can uh, be okay with who they are, their life works so much better. So, yeah. but we all have these inner conflicts and generally we're just using uh whatever strategies we can figure out to get through life uh without examining so i completely agree with you well what you
1: might find interesting randy is in my work i boiled it down to four fundamental inner conflicts and i have a sense you'll be most interested in hearing these four Mm -hmm. classic foundational inner conflicts
0: and i actually have that um (laughs) i wanted to ask you (laughs) we're gonna get there oh believe me we're gonna get there um What I wanted to know is, um, can you explain the three diagonal dimensions? The distributive, integrative and protective. How do we use these?
1: Well, as I mentioned, assertiveness and cooperativeness are the two underlying dimensions that are the y-axis and the x-axis. And then on that model, we can place the diagonals. And one diagonal runs from avoiding to compromising. I call that the protective dimension. You're getting less than you could if you took everything for yourself or gave everything to the other person. So you're somehow limiting what each of you get by avoiding. That's the protective dimension. And I call it protective because that's the bad side of avoiding. There's something important to you, but you stay away from it because you don't like com- conflict, you are uncomfortable. So that's the bad side of avoiding because no one gets their needs met. Okay. And then the other diagonal is the distributive dimension, and that runs from competing at the top left down to the bottom right, accommodating. And you go back and forth. That's the seesaw of give and take. The more you get, the less I get. It's a zero-sum pie. We're just dividing up the pieces. So it's like 100% is the total conflict. And if I get most of my needs met, that might be 75, you get 25. It adds to 100. Whereas I should mention, the protective dimension adds to less than 100 because each of you is getting less than what you could have gotten if you went on the distributive dimension. But ultimately, the integrative dimension runs from compromising up to collaborating. You're now expanding the size of the pie. There's more to discuss. You add issues. It's not just about what time do we have this business meeting, it's like what are we going to discuss? Who's going to be there? Where's the location? Who's bringing the food? It gets more complex, and then you can develop an interesting package where more people get their needs met. So the diagonal dimensions give extra depth to interpreting the results. So some people get locked on the distributive dimension. Their high modes are competing, accommodating, compromising, and avoiding and collaborating are very low. They hardly use them. Or they're always into the protective dimension between avoiding and compromising. So they're always either staying away or getting less than what they really would like or the collaborating dimension. If they can move up the integrative dimension, more people are happy, more people are satisfied. But as I said, that only works under a very special set of conditions. But those are the diagonal mentions, and that with assertiveness and cooperativeness. My goodness, you can look at so much going on within a person, between people and between nations.
0: You're so right. How do we solve conflict when um, it's when the only there's only one person in the equation that wants that solved?
1: Well, the one thing about collaborating, uh, both people have to want it, be able to do it, have the skills, and so forth. Uh, it takes two people to have a party, you know. So if there's only one and the other person doesn't want to engage. The other person can be patient perhaps make overtures i'd really like to resolve it maybe we can go to another setting get away from work and and you know go out and have a dinner and and talk about it but let's get this resolved because it keeps coming up so one person then keeps inviting the other but it always takes two and if the other person is just not ready there's not much you can do about it
0: okay all right so you know as i say that I'm thinking about dealing with somebody with a personality disorder who is not interested in collaborating or compromising or anything like that. And the, um, one of the things that, that my clients find the hardest is that they have to do all of this on their own. They have to resolve things, uh, within themselves because the conflict that's existing on the outside cannot get resolved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that all the five conflict modes I mentioned are assuming that people can be somewhat mindful, they are somewhat mentally healthy, there's only moderate or low stress so they can have a conversation. Otherwise, nothing is going to happen that's going to be effective and supportive of resolving the situation. So we have to develop the conditions so that people can have that conversation And so people can resolve their issues. But I should also mention with this notion of mental health, uh, under high stress, and oftentimes mental health causes stress because people are not seeing reality in a comfortable, relaxing way. They're being triggered from the past. Mm -hmm. They have anxiety from previous traumas that they're reminded of, so on and so forth. And then what happens is there's a, a morph that takes place, a morphogenesis, where competing becomes fight avoiding becomes flight and accommodating becomes freeze and fight flight freeze is the sympathetic nervous system of dealing with threat it's like seeing something that's very scary you can't mindfully think about it you either run from the situation you fight it or you pretend you're dead and you freeze on the spot and hope the danger goes away but those are not mindful choices. Those are simply reactions by what is called the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain just wants to survive and to protect itself. So its behaviors for conflict management are fight, flight, freeze. So when you're dealing with people who can't be mindful, can't be choiceful because they're under so much stress, whether it's for mental health or for other reasons, you can expect fight, flight, freeze, not competing, accommodating, compromising, compromising let alone collaborating.
0: Okay. I can truly see that. Okay. And so when we're in fight, flight, freeze, um, nothing's going to get really resolved and, and we're in those, you know, in fight, flight, freeze, um, how do we begin to resolve within ourselves? You know, when, how do we get out of that mode, um, to the point where we can wake up and become mindful of what we need to do for ourselves?
1: Well, I've seen a lot of programs develop about mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which includes things like yoga and reflection Mm -hmm. and people going on consciousness retreats to learn more about themselves. And I would like to see this brought into organizations. In fact, I wrote another book called The Courageous Mosaic. This was back 2013, I believe it was. And in that book, I talk about how we have to reposition all our public education to nurture the expansion of consciousness. What good is it to have high English and math scores if you don't know who you are and why you are here and what you're capable of doing? So we have to realize that it is that consciousness that enables our citizens to work well with one another and to build a happy, healthy environment for people to grow and develop. But without consciousness, that's not going to happen. So we really need to get people to be more mindful, healthy. I certainly believe there's there's been and there continues to be a mental health crisis in the US. We don't understand it. And yet it's all over the place. And yet you can't have a good conversation if people are still seriously wounded from the past and they haven't transcended those wounds to become a healthy, effective, interacting person
0: you know you this is something that you know i'm a big proponent of i really do think the um the educational system has got to change they're not teaching us tools for life these are very important there's so many things um how to cope with situations how to compromise um, and this consciousness and mindfulness is so important i'm really hoping that at some point this gets integrated um I don't know the way things are right now it's not going to happen anytime soon but it could happen Um, what happens when people act out of fear or spite during a conflict situation
1: well that beautifully defines being on the protective dimension we're out of fear that whatever i say is going to be used against me i've been hurt in the past I don't like these people, they hurt me, I'm not gonna share what I need or know. And that fear then prevents the people from interacting and resolving the conflict. That's the protective dimension. Spite is saying, to make sure you don't get what you need, I'm gonna take less myself. It's like cutting off my nose to spite my face. So, and people do that. They're angry, they still have rage, they have grudges. And so just to make sure you don't get what you want, I'm taking less myself. That moves us down the protective dimension. The size of the pie shrinks. People are not getting their needs met. And if people don't get their needs met again and again and again, they either leave the situation or they do the minimum to get by until something better comes along.
0: Wow, that's so true. What are the eight attributes of a conflict situation?
1: Okay, those are what we look at to see what conflict mode is most likely to be effective. The first one I usually list is stress. If there's high stress, you can forget about collaborating because you're not going to have a good conversation. So if you want to collaborate, you got to bring that stress down, moderate or low stress. How important is the issue to you versus the other person? If it's much more important to you, then by all means, assert yourself. Try to get your needs met. Because for the other person, it's not that important anyway. And maybe if the case where it's much more important to the other person, accommodate. And then when something's more important to you, maybe that a person will accommodate to you. Okay. Also, do you have the time to hold a discussion? Collaborating takes time. Some of the other modes like compromising means flipping a coin, splitting a difference. It doesn't take much time. If you're in a crisis situation, compete, make the decision, talk about it later. But in a crisis, you got to act. You don't have time to collaborate, okay? And then also, do people have good communication skills? If they're going to share their needs and wants, they have to do it effectively, not to get other people defensive, to judge them, to put them down, but to share. This is really what's important to me. I want you to understand this. And then does the surrounding culture in an organization or family support a discussion about conflict? In some cultures, they say, don't step on the toes of senior management don't rock the moat, don't make waves, stick to your own problem, leave everyone else alone. And as a result, conflict gets affected because people don't resolve it because the culture says we don't talk about it here. Or the reward system in an organization. People observe who gets rewarded, who gets promoted, who gets the pet projects. And if those people who constantly avoid conflict and do not challenge their bosses are the ones getting rewarded, then it tells people what this organization rewards here. So if you want a good performance review, you better not rock the boat. Mm -hmm. So those are the conditions you look at, there's eight in total, and that helps you decide which mode is most likely to work, or how do I have to change the situation if I wanna do more of collaborating so more of our needs get met, then I know what I have to do differently. And quantum transformation, is working with organizations to make sure the culture, the reward system, the skill sets, support effective conflict management. Because in today's world, if we can't resolve our conflicts effectively, we can't move forward, and then we can't have the happiness and the health that we all desire. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And the, the eighth one is, do people want their relationships to last? That's important.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you are so competing that you're always getting your needs met and the other person doesn't, as I mentioned, ultimately, they're going to leave the situation or just give you lip service and do the minimum to get by. So if you want the relationship to last over time, people need to get their most important needs met, period. Otherwise, they disengage or leave.
0: That's so true. And I come across um, a lot of people who have this view that in um especially in a, in a close relationship like a marriage or a love relationship that uh, they're supposed to sacrifice and this is like a, i i don't know where this comes from i guess it comes from watching their parent their mother their father sacrifice for the other parent because they didn't have good conflict skills but i always tell them there's sacrificing doesn't work there's compromise how do you feel about that
1: Well, what's interesting is in the 1970s, one of the first uses of the TKI was a before and after of a workshop that's helping women to be more assertive. And it came out of the feminist movement of the 60s, where the culture said, you know, the guy runs the show and the woman is supposed to accommodate. And women are, quote unquote, trained to accommodate. And guys get the false impression that they're supposed to always have their way and you know as long as the guy is competing and the woman is accommodating it works but ultimately if women's needs are not getting met then there something is going to hit the fan so to speak and there's going to be a crisis there's going to be a conflict and people decide whether the relationship is going to last so what they did is they gave women this tki like on a friday Then they had several days of assertiveness training, which was popular in the 1970s. You have needs. You're entitled to your needs. You deserve to get your needs met. These are ways you can get your needs met. And then on Sunday or Monday after the workshop, they take the TKI again. And lo and behold, the women came out more assertive, more likely to use competing and compromising and collaborating and not just avoiding and accommodating. And then, of course, we didn't always follow this, but then the women go back to their homes, their families, and maybe the husbands are not quite ready for a more assertive spouse, but that's part of the journey through life.
0: That's exactly right. Yes, both people have to be willing to be able to accept this, the changes that happen, but that's marriage that's it you know there people are always changing and growing and you've got to be able to to grow with that other person Exactly. Um, what before we get into the four foundational inner conflicts what is the uh, koci or cosi instrument
1: the cosi instrument was developed because I realized how powerful those surrounding systems impact on culture Uh, on, on conflict management. So for example, what I used to do is hand out two TKIs with different instructions. The first TKI was how do you respond to conflict within this group, within this department, in the organization? The second TKI, how do you respond to conflict in all other settings in your life, outside this organization? And that what we'd find out is outside this organization, many employees were very assertive but inside the organization, accommodating and avoiding. Mm. In fact, what was fascinating is when I put the TKI conflict model on the organization chart, on each box on the organization chart and showed the results, as you move down the hierarchy, more and more accommodating and avoiding. Mm. At the top of the hierarchy, competing, collaborating, compromising, the more assertive modes. But the executives can afford to be assertive. The question is, what does the culture say if people below can't be assertive and they wind up avoiding and accommodating? Now, I realized that surrounding systems was driving that different behavior towards accommodating and avoiding in the organization. But it's just it was a guess. And what the COSI instrument measures, that's the Kilman Organizational Conflict Instrument, is your conflict with those surrounding systems. When you find that the culture does not support your behavior, what do you do? Avoid? Do you talk to people? Do you try to collaborate? Do you compete? What do you do to resolve that issue? If the reward system is not conducive to effective conflict management, do you just let it be? Or do you do something? How do you address that conflict? It is a conflict. How do you resolve it? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize that they are in conflict with their surrounding systems. They may wanna do something in the family or in the neighborhood or in the workplace, but the culture and reward system says, don't you dare, because you're gonna get in trouble and it's gonna hurt you. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to measure explicitly, what about the culture, the strategy, the structure, the reward system, the teams in the organization are making it difficult for people to use the conflict modes that would satisfy their needs and other people's needs. So that's what the COSI instrument measures, your conflict with surrounding systems. The TKI is just measuring the five conflict modes. It doesn't ask you about your surrounding systems. So it kind of helps us understand the context within which conflict management takes place.
0: Okay. Okay what do we do if we're i mean from what i've observed most hierarchy systems run the way that you've said where you know the the people as it trickles down you have to be more and more accommodating against your you know your nature or your best judgment or whatever you're comfortable with and there are situations many situations where those people at that lower level cannot get their needs met. So what do we do? Well,
1: I'll give you an extreme case of that. As you were talking, it reminded me of one of the consulting projects I did in Spain in the uh, late 1980s. And this was only 15 years after they got rid of Franco, the dictator, who would put people in prison for speaking up and disagreeing with him, Mm -hmm. okay? So they were still living within that environment. And when I first got there, the CEO was this enlightened person who wanted to bring his organization into the 21st century, period. He was a very inspiring, charismatic person. And so he wanted to bring this program to his organization. He realized the need. And as a result of that, we had discussions. Now, as I worked with the people every month For two years, I would go to Spain for one week a month, for two years, working with the various groups in the organization. In the beginning, nobody would say a thing. In fact, everything was done through interpreters and translators. But I would ask a question, nobody said anything. They were absolutely quiet. And then we started talking about conflict and conflict management. I related it to the Franco regime and the old consequence of what happens when you speak up on a conflict and you challenge the system. It was dangerous. You could be put in jail. Do we want to keep doing that? Does that still exist? No, let's talk about it. And to make a long story short, six or eight months into this program, I couldn't shut these people up. (laughs) I'd be saying there and they would talk, talk, talk. And I used to joke and say, you know, it was kind of nice when I came here. You people would listen to me. You wouldn't challenge me. That all has changed. And they would just laugh. They would just laugh. So it changes, but you have to talk about it. What works, what doesn't? What cultural norms would help us move forward? What cultural norms do no longer work? Like don't step on the toes, don't challenge people, don't speak up, keep your ideas to yourself, don't be the first fool to come out with a new idea because you're going to get squelched. Mm -hmm. If that's the culture, that's not going to lead us into the future. So what are the new norms? And they talk about it. Most organizations have never had a conversation about this.
0: You're right. What do
1: we do one another that helps us or hurts us in doing well and being satisfied with our work? Yeah. If you don't have that conversation, no change will take place. And it must be done in a workshop setting where it's safe. In fact, in the first few months, I separate the bosses from their subordinates in every group. Everyone's in a peer group because unless the culture supports openly speaking when the boss is present, you can't have a good workshop. Right. So you have to set the conditions so you can begin the change process
0: and is there is there power in uh a group changing their conflict management so in other words if the the top level um has really uh created a, a climate of you know accommodation in the subordinates um, can the subordinates get together and create some kind of change, or you know, I guess that would really man- um, depend on whether the upper level, level, upper level management is willing to.
1: Well, there's right. always pockets in the organization where somehow people defy the odds and say, "I want this environment, and within my group, this is how we're going to operate." Even though when I go to other department meetings, it's a very different scene. Okay. So there's going to be some variation. But it's unlikely there's going to be a system-wide transformation if senior management is not supportive, behind, and gives the best example of what the new behavior is. The CEO, the senior executives have to lead by example because their subordinates, the employees at the lower levels, they look and see what's valued, what's important, what do they really want. They're always reading their executives and their bosses and their managers. So those managers and bosses, in fact, I have programs with the senior executives to say, let's act out the behavior that's going to kill the program. Mm -hmm. What would you say? What would you do to make sure this program dies? And on the other hand, what would you say or do if you wanted to give people the inspiration that we're going to make a difference? We're taking this seriously and we're going to see it through. We're not going to give it up like we did on many other programs that we had for two months and then went on to something else. We're going to stick with it. They have to set the example if you're going to have system-wide quantum transformation.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Okay, now let's get to the four foundational inner conflicts. Okay. All right, so the first one, are you a physical body or an energy body? Okay. Um, in, In your book... You demonstrate that a disempowered life on the protective dimension is entirely focused on surviving day after day. And then after that, you demonstrate what happens when the person radiates the higher levels of emotional energy, such as courage, neutrality, willingness, acceptance, and reason as channeled through their heart chakra and their throat chakra. Okay. So speak to that in layman's terms. What did I just say?
1: Well, in the Western world, I find that people see the world in physical terms. I'm a physical body. That's who I am. What sometimes has been called a skin encapsulated ego. I am what's inside my skin and it's all physical. Okay. And as a result of that, that's all that I see. That's how I interact with people. And yet in the Eastern world, we've been exposed to this. There's a thing called subtle energy. And when you walk into a room, you can feel the mood. It's not something physical. You sense it, you can read it. Emotional intelligence is all about reading the cues, the emotions, the energies, that may say more than any words that anyone says that comes out of their mouth. So the question is, do you recognize that the universe is also about energy, the transmission of energy? and that ultimately energy moves the world. It's another translation of Einstein's famous equation of E equals MC squared. Energy is all what matter is about, and matter ultimately comes down to energy. And it's not just gross energy, it's subtle energy. And the spread of consciousness has a lot to do with subtle energy. And we also learn from the Eastern world about the energy centers in our body, the chakras. You know, the root, the genital, the vortex, you know, the heart, the throat, the, you know, the third eye and then the crown chakra. These are energy centers where we radiate this. Well, part of expanding consciousness is radiating energy through the higher chakras. So instead of anger and fear and pride and grief and shame, just listen to what that sounds like. We have love, joy, peace and compassion. And when you interact with people from love, joy, peace, and compassion, the words sound completely differently. The energy, the feeling is different. Different things happen. So collaborating works better when you are surrounded by a culture of love, joy, peace, and compassion, not fear, spite, anger, and grief. It doesn't work. So the first inner conflict is to realize, and I always set it up as an either or choice on the distributive dimension. I'm either a physical body or an energy body. I set it up purposely because ultimately we integrate the two on the integrative dimension and we realize we are both a physical body and an energy body. I am all of that. So I can be more to myself and be more to other people. And incidentally, that also means I have more opportunities for healing, all kinds of illness, disease, and health because I can use solutions that deal with my subtle energy and not just my physical body
0: yeah you know um many people who have suffered um abuse emotional abuse physical abuse in childhood <clears throat> end up having very extreme energetic sensitivities um I find this with many of my clients and I found it with myself and because we grow up in an environment where we for survival we have to anticipate the energies around us and so that becomes a norm for a child and we take that into adulthood and excuse me so it complicates people's issues when they get to be adults because they're not realizing that a lot of what they're taking in is from other people's energies you know yeah and and so,
1: projected from the past that has nothing to do with the present.
0: That's true. Absolutely. that's true. So um, <clears throat> I tr- always try to broach that with people. Um, some people think it's very woo-woo. And what is this energy thing? You know, I'm not I'm not about energy, but it is it, when somebody tells me that they get it, I know that we have we can really, really move forward because they have to understand that they're both. You
1: know, well, I spent uh, 30 years at the University of Pittsburgh, and whatever Pittsburgh is, and Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania, and the East Coast, I was not exposed to consciousness. I got involved in therapy, but not subtle energy and those sorts of things. And then in 2001, I lived my dream and moved to California. Mm. And I discovered that California is a candy store for consciousness retreats, energy meditation, you name it, it's here. I didn't experience that in Pittsburgh. That's why I started really looking at myself on all these dimensions, mind, body, soul, and spirit, Mm -hmm. and then did work to bring it into organizations. That's the radical thing. Mm -hmm. Because I would be in large audiences with hundreds, if not a few thousand people, and I ask them to raise their hand. How many people have heard about Reiki and yoga and mindfulness and and are doing this in your personal lives? So many hands go up. Then I ask, how many people are having these discussions in the workplace? All the hands come down. It's like taboo to bring consciousness and subtle energy discussions into the workplace. And yet people spend most of their waking lives at work. OK, and as a result of if they can't find peace and joy through their work in their consciousness, then they're not being very fulfilled in life. So we have to make sure that places of work is where you can express your soul, your passions, yourself in the truest form possible. Or as Shakespeare said to thine own self be true. That means all of it, not just some mental component, everything.
0: Right, right. Um... I often hear people say, can I really be who I am? (laughs) Um, It's a question I get a lot, you know, and I'm like, of course, you. Well,
1: that actually leads us to the second
0: (laughs) inner conflict. Okay. So the second is the inner conflict of ego-soul, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, the ego and soul, again, I say, are you governed by your ego or... Are you governed by your soul? Again, I set it up as a dichotomy to force the discussion on the distributive dimension before we realize it's not either or. We can do both. Okay. The ego is most concerned about fame, glory, achievement, accomplishment, immortality, control, power, those sorts of things. Okay. Mm-hmm. The soul asks, why am I here? It's like the Mark Twain question. Mm-hmm. Why was I given this privilege of life? what am I here to do? What is my piece of the puzzle? What is my mission? How can I leave more behind than what I brought into this world and into this life? So, ego and soul ask very different questions. So, it's not either or. How do we address it? So, our ego and soul are on the same path, are on the same page. So, the energy from the ego is directed towards the soul's purpose because the ego is energy, strong energy. It's taking energy from traumas and challenges in the past, but it can funnel it to something productive into a gift. And that's where the soul comes to play. So you take that ego energy and you put it in the direction of why your soul is here in the first place. And then everything you do feels more meaningful, is more meaningful and has more impact on other people.
0: Some of some spiritual practices, I think people get really confused with this because some spiritual practices um, just say, get rid of your ego. We can't do that, can we?
1: No. In fact, fact, I even do that, right? In fact, I say in in the book, why would you want to destroy or discard anything that served your life and your interest? So it's not about saying I got to destroy my ego to serve my soul. It's how can I get them on the same page? That's a part of me. That's valuable. Why would I want to discard that? In fact, the basic principle is what's called include and transcend. So everything you've done, you include, but then you transcend it. You go beyond it. But you don't destroy and discard anything. It's all part of who you are. You can use it for good purposes or it can drag you down. Yeah,
0: I think um, Eckhart... Eckhart Tolle uh, talks a lot about, you know, getting rid of the ego and um, that's very confusing to people. I mean, when you do that, uh, it, 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 bring, it makes you one dimensional, you know, yeah. and, and we aren't one dimensional, you know, we are. The- I
1: find it more productive to say rather than getting rid of something, <clears throat> how can I transform this into something that's more useful, that serves me and other people? I think that's the healthiest approach because it says that's taking all of who I am and doing something healthy and productive with it.
0: So why does ego get such a bad rap?
1: Well, it has uh, the lingo of, you know, somebody with a big ego who's a bully and hurts other people. And we want to destroy and get rid of that. I still say that sometimes when people have been bullies, they do transform and they become the most effective managers, but not until they wake up, see what they're doing and have the courage and the strength to go on a different path. But Essentially, we, we want to talk about it. But the ego has a bad rap because it's often associated with the really negative sides of ego when people are hurting, bullying, yelling, and harming others. Right. Or in the egocentric self, that all that right. you are the only human being and everyone else is an object and be treated accordingly. That brings in the whole narcissism, for example.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Um, okay, so the third foundation or inner, foundational inner conflict, why does the inner, okay, so inner conflict, why does the inner conflict of self versus systems purposely challenge the self identity of anyone who does not yet grasp the unity of the spiritual universe?
1: Yeah, this is a very important one. Well, they're all important, but they for are. different reasons. But this speaks to what I said, said earlier about the COSI instrument, where I want to measure your conflict with the systems. I find that most people see those surrounding systems, culture, strategy, structure, reward system, as being outside them, outside their skin. Therefore, someone else's responsibility. Now, can you imagine people walking around in an organization, everyone believing that someone else is supposed to take care of the surrounding systems. Someone's supposed to fix the culture. Someone's supposed to change the strategic goal. Someone's supposed to change, redesign the, the jobs and the work units and the departments. Well, who's to do that? Well, you're going to keep pointing at senior management. They're pointing and waiting for the economy to change. Everyone's pointing at something else. Okay. But essentially we realize what if we take the posture that the surrounding systems are not really surrounding us. They're in us. We are them. And therefore, if those surrounding systems are part of who I am, because we're connected on every level with everything energetically then as a result of that, I have to take responsibility for my systems. So if I'm at not at peace with the culture, strategy, and structure, I got to speak up. I got to talk to people. We have to examine this. We can discuss this. This is a part of who we are. We're all responsible for our systems. We can't just use them to condition others and forget that they're having this influence on us. We have to realize that we're part of the problem. And therefore, we have to accept full responsibility for those systems. Maybe we didn't create them. But if we simply accept and work under them, then we are part of the problem. We have to address that and change the systems to support healthy living.
0: And this takes us to, what you, to, to one, of the com- one of the points that you make in the book. Can anything be separate from who we are?
1: Yeah, which is really why we, we shouldn't destroy <clears throat> the ego because it is part of it. That's like cutting off your arm. Why would you want to do that? and those systems, we are connected with everything. That's called unity consciousness. In fact, I like the, uh, the Ken Wilber model, which talks about egocentric, you know, you're the only human and everyone else is an object and you treat them that way. Mm-hmm. Ethnocentric, now you have a tribe, it's us yeah. versus them, but the them is not really human, they're objects too. Okay. And ultimately you can expand to world-centric and spirit-centric consciousness, where you realize we're truly all in this together and we have to work together. And my measure of spirit-centric consciousness is if you are in America, for example, and you learn about that someone in Africa is hurting, that hurts you as much as if that were happening to your own child. We're not there yet, but that's when we have unity consciousness, and we would then go about resolving conflicts very, very differently.
0: Wow, you're right. Okay the fourth foundational inner conflict what is the primary purpose in trying to resolve our primal relationships and by primal relationships you mean our primary relationships the ones who are closest to us right
1: yeah well we're going back to the source typically in early childhood whether it's parents or guardians or strangers Mm -hmm. or school teachers or bullies in school neighborhood whatever they all have a certain kind of influence on us and they often cause trauma in fact you can't be a human being without having lived through trauma. Welcome to the human race. It's going to happen. Right. I don't condone it. I don't wish it on anyone. But once it happens, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to remain bitter? Are you going to get into grief and anger and despair? Or are you going to say, how can I turn this into a gift? And I have the fourth inner conflict, the one on primal relationships, because I think that one is easier to address after you've been through the first three. Because the hardest thing, as we say, is to face our demons, Mm -hmm. because it hurts. But if we don't face it, Mm -hmm. then we're spending most of our time living in yesterday. And if you're living in yesterday, you can't focus on today and tomorrow. So how can you fulfill your mission in life if you're still wrapped up and living out all the bad stuff that was done for you that you've never really processed and healed and transcended into a gift?
0: And they are gifts. Yeah. I mean, I've learned that with my life, you know, that when I look back, everything had a purpose and everything drove me, brought me to where I am today. Um, I have to be very careful when I'm working with people who are really at the peak of their trauma and experiencing to let them know that there is a silver lining here, that there's, you know, that it will pay off. Um, that they will see a reason for this um, ultimately. But yeah, I think the longer that we live and we can have hindsight, we can look behind us, we can see the value of all. Here is
1: my acid test of what can be done uh, with those early traumas. And I've asked myself this question, I've asked other people, if you could time travel and go back in time and prevent those traumas from happening, would you do it? Mm -hmm. Well, if you are truly resolved with those traumas, and if you've used them, those wounds, to turn them into gifts, you wouldn't change it. I know what my traumas are. In fact, I wrote a book that starts with my early traumas. I couldn't just talk about consciousness without bringing myself into it. It's mm-hmm. not like, do as I say, not as I do. Right. So I wrote this book, I included my traumas. And yes, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't change them because they made me who I am. They allowed me to find these gifts, and give these gifts to others if i didn't have the right traumas there would be no thomas kilman instrument
0: right same with my work my work everything in my past has let me led me to this place where i can then help other people yeah. when i resolved all of that then i can now help other people resolve it so and i find that most people that do this kind of work um, really do have a, quite a history i mean we all have trauma but people who do this work are are those who have had really a big history of major traumas and have worked through them and now are on the other side of it to help other people
1: yeah yeah i've even said to one person you reminded me of something basically saying you haven't had enough trauma yet (laughs) and and when you have enough trauma then you're going to start looking and you're going to learn
0: that's so true you know the children who have trauma Um, I hate to say there's an advantage to it, but it does make you a more resilient adult once you recognize it and work through it. Children who don't have anything, there's no conflict, there's very little trauma in their life, and then they get to be adults and they're faced with the world, which is just throwing trauma at us all the time. They don't know what to do. Like... yeah
1: but the other side of it is this randy i have discussed this topic with people and in some cases when i ask them if you could go back in time and change the trauma would you and they describe their trauma to me and they say i don't want to go back if i did go back i would change it i don't want to live with this and when they've described to me the trauma they are truly horrific so there are some cases where the trauma is so huge It does make it hard to recover. I just want to acknowledge that it's not like there's something wrong with you. If you can't recover, Mm -hmm. because sometimes traumas go to such a level they they are quite debilitating.
0: Yes, absolutely. They are debilitating. You're absolutely right. Thank you for for saying that. So you say that although there are different ways to talk about past wounds, demons and abusive behavior, the reframing of those past wounds into an interpersonal conflict over the truth about what happened often enable the two people to proceed with the healing process. Um, Once they accept the basic premise that a conflict about truth just as any other interpersonal conflict can be approached with one or more of the five conflict handling modes, with each mode leading to different opportunities for healing wounds and becoming whole. Um, So how do we reframe these things?
1: Well, it's interesting. When you talk to people about their traumas, they start describing, you say, what happened? And they describe it as if that is the only hold on truth. But in reality, uh, we've learned with eyewitness reports, not only about people about themselves, but what they observe in others, there's distortion. You only see certain things, you don't see others. It's like having a video camera and you're asked to take a a camera recording of the group. Well, you focus on some people more than others. You're gonna focus on things with the camera lens and you're gonna miss other things. The same thing with telling a story of what trauma you had. You remember some things, but not others. I'm not discounting what happened. I'm simply saying over time, there's distortion because people have to protect themselves and certain things are too scary to remember and other things get fabricated. So I feel better about myself. And then sometimes there's other people in that same traumatic situation, like a child versus parents. And they want to have a discussion on this is how I remember my childhood. Do you remember this? And then if they can hold such a conversation over the truth, they find out their parents had a very different version or the stranger had a different version about what happened. Mm -hmm. It's not that it wasn't traumatic, but Mm -hmm. there is a discussion about what really happened. And sometimes there's distortion. Mm -hmm. And if we can correct the distortion, then at least we know what the nature of the conflict is. When there's a lot of distortion, it's just like dealing with a cloud. You you can't get your arms around it. You know, what's really going on? There's such different variations, different scenarios, different stories about what happened. But it's all a story. Mm -hmm. Now, if we can discuss that with the people who hurt us and we can do it in a productive way. We often learn a lot. I mean, some people go into therapy after their parents have passed and they try to have the conversation they would have had if their parents were still alive. Mm -hmm. Nothing beats a live conversation if you can have it. And I had some people read my earlier book Mm -hmm. when I talked about trauma and how to heal. And they went and actually, because I describe in that book how I confronted my mom and my dad about the traumas that I had so they would understand it and I could learn from it. And so some of these readers went back and set up meetings with their parents they never thought they'd ever had. And I remember one person had a meeting with his dad when he was very old. And ultimately, the dad said, that was the best present you could have given me. I now understand. So it's amazing what a conversation can do if you're able to hold it. And once you've gone through those first three inner conflicts, I think you'll find it easier to set up meetings and discuss what happened in the past with those primary caregivers that caused trauma and let's see if we can resolve it. And by discussing what really happened, I can correct my own distortions and other people's distortions. So at least I know what is the real nature of the conflict, not what I added to it, with fabrications to survive and to protect myself.
0: Okay, and I do have to point out here that um, because of the work that I do, and so many people who are listening have had um, abuse of a parent who is personality disordered, and um, have tried numerous times to bring the subject up to get information to confront it, only to be told that never happened. Yeah. So I know a lot of people are are hearing this and going yeah i've done that i've tried you know so i only have my version because uh the other parties uh refuse to admit that they've done anything wrong they just won't go there and that's well i can difficult. suggest
1: i can just suggest this randy in my own case i kept bringing it up i did not give up and as my parents got older their resistance goes down <laughs> So if you persist and you do it in a nice constructive way, not to hurt them, not to blame them, not to put them down, but to learn. If you can do it in a healthy, constructive way, it is more likely they will reciprocate. But you may have to do it, ask for it many times. It may take a while. You may have to wait till they're old and their defenses are down, and then you can maybe have that conversation. But if you can have it, it's a very healing conversation. I
0: I would imagine that it is. In my experience, um, as people get older with this narcissistic personality disorder, they tend to get more dug in. They tend to get more rigid, um, and they um, it it is it's a very difficult. Conversation and sometimes for self-preservation, in order for people to heal, they can't keep going back into these conversations and have the same rejection and rejection and rejection. They eventually they just have to move past it. Um, So it's wonderful if it can happen. It really is, and I do think that people should absolutely try to do that. But I don't want anybody to think that they've failed because they've been. That
1: that's an excellent point. I I think the lesson is, give it a try, do the best you can. But if the other person doesn't reciprocate, you're going to have to find a way to resolve it on your own so you can move forward in life and not continually swim in the mess that was created, which prevents you from living today and tomorrow.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We have to make some hard choices sometimes, yeah. um, you know, and 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 I think the the deepest wound is our um, family of origin uh, when we can't resolve that. That's very, very difficult for people. But that's a lot of what I, the work that I do. Yeah. So this is just incredibly fascinating um and you've done some amazing brilliant work with us so um mastering the thomas kilman conflict mode instrument tki um so how can people get this book well go there it is
1: okay well (laughs) it's available on amazon across the entire planet whether it's the us england australia germany uh it's on amazon and that's probably the easiest way to order it
0: (laughs) Okay. And do you have a website um, where people can go and do do you blog or anything like that about this?
1: Yes, I have a a website that has just so much information. I have most of my uh, many articles there for people to download and read. And I have 11 online courses. I have other assessment tools all available on my website. I have many blogs and articles. And that website is wwwkilman one l 2 ns diagnostics.com. So it's www.kilmandiagnostics.com.
0: Okay, great. And uh, are you still researching? Are you still working on this? Well, (laughs) it's interesting.
1: Uh, Before I wrote that TKI book, which just came out two months ago, my previous book came out in 2021. And I claimed that that was going to be my very last book. And I was done writing. And then this past year, someone said to me, Did you ever think about putting everything together about the TKI in one book? And I said, huh, no, I think I'm going to do that now. But so right now, I don't know if I'm going to be doing another book.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. Right. Oh, I get that. I'll I'll
1: wait and see. I'm happy with what I've done. I feel very content, but uh, we'll see what comes into my view.
0: Right. I I mean, I know um, the last book that I wrote, I had no idea I was going to write it. And I have um, I'm friends with somebody who is a psychic medium. And she said, you have another book. And I'm like, no, I don't I don't want to write another book. She goes, no, you have another book. I'm like, "Okay." and there it was. So I get what you're you're saying.
1: When the time is right, it will happen.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for educating us in this way um, and helping us to see how we can um, experience conflict in a, in a, in a better way, um, and therefore experience life in a better way and have better relationships. So I really appreciate this.
1: Thank you so much, Randy. I enjoyed our conversation immensely.
0: Thank you. Me too. It's been great talking to you and have a wonderful day.
1: Okay. You too.
0: Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.